This program is brought to you by Suffolk University. Please visit us on the web at www.suffolk.edu. My name is Nicole Friedrichs. I'm a practitioner in residence here at Suffolk Law School. I'll be teaching the new Indian Law and Indigenous Peoples Clinic starting in the spring of 2012. My article examines whether federal law settling the land claims of Indian tribes in Maine meets international human rights standards as articulated in the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. The full title of the article is A Reason to Revisit Maine Settlement Acts, the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, and it was published by the American Indian Law Review over the summer. The UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples was adopted by the UN General Assembly in September 2007. It was unique in that it was drafted both by Indigenous peoples and by state governments. The declaration itself outlines and describes the human rights of Indigenous peoples. It doesn't necessarily grant special rights or unique rights or new rights to Indigenous peoples, but rather outlines basic human rights that we all share within the context of Indigenous peoples and what it means for them. The declaration isn't technically binding on states, unlike, for example, a treaty like the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights. So it's not technically binding, but a lot of states, a lot of academics, practitioners, indigenous peoples themselves, as well as courts that have reviewed the declaration, agree that at least some provisions of the declaration are binding on states through customary international law. The right to self-determination is found in other international human rights treaties, such as the Covenant on Economic, Social, and Cultural Rights. So it's something that we all share, a right that we're all afforded. And it's also found in the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. And I'll just read directly the two provisions that raise the right. That includes Article 3, which provides that Indigenous peoples have the right to self-determination. By virtue of that right, they freely determine their political status and freely pursue their economic, social, and cultural development. And then Article 4 kind of expands a little bit on that, and it states that Indigenous peoples, in exercising their right to self-determination, have the right to autonomy or self-government in matters relating to their internal and local affairs, as well as ways and means for financing their autonomous functions. To kind of explain that in more plain language, I'll quote the former chairperson of the Working Group on Indigenous Peoples. This is Dr. Erica Irene Dace, and the Working Group is actually involved in the drafting of the Declaration. She describes the right to self-determination for Indigenous Peoples is about feeling that they have choices about their way of life and are able to live well and humanly in those ways. So I think that offers a better description, not the legalese that you might find in the Declaration. In terms of its key components, you have the right to self-government and the right to autonomy, that you have this control over how you live. The right to self-determination was actually controversial at first. Its inclusion in the Declaration was controversial because states were worried that Indigenous peoples would use that right as a way to kind of create their own separate states, and obviously governments didn't want that to happen. Through the drafting, Article 46 was included in the Declaration, which says that nothing in the Declaration should be construed or encouraged that states' territorial integrity would be broken up in some way. So that kind of alleviated that fear and allowed a lot of states to actually sign on to the declaration when voting. Two cases that the Court of Appeals for the First Circuit had decided in 2007, and these are the two cases that I look to in my article as a way to kind of examine whether these settlement acts and the way they're being interpreted by the courts meet these international human rights standards found in the declaration. Before I get into those specific cases, I have to explain a little bit about the Settlement Acts. It's hard to talk about the cases without having a little bit of background on the Settlement Acts. So starting in the 1970s, a few of the tribes in Maine brought these land claims against the state of Maine 
arguing that their land was taken in violation of federal law. So instead of litigating those cases in court, the parties sat down and essentially settled these claims through this legislation, both federal legislation and state legislation. And in the legislation, the federal government recognizes these tribes as sovereign governments, provide for a lump sum for the loss of lands, and some of the settlements acts also kind of outline part of the jurisdictional arrangement between the state and the tribes. So that kind of gives you a little bit of a background of the settlement acts. And over the course of the years, since 1980, when the first settlement act was enacted, the tribes and the state have been arguing about what these settlement acts mean. And they've been in court numerous times. And the latest round happened in 2007 when the First Circuit looked at these two cases and decided these two cases. So starting with the Ryan case, which is actually two cases that were consolidated by the First Circuit, and these address the rights of the Maliseets and the Mi'kmaqs. This is the Holden Band of Maliseet Indians up in very northern Maine and the Roostic Band of Mi'kmaqs, again, in very northern Maine. And in these two cases, Cases, former employees of the tribal government brought complaints against the tribes with the state of Maine's Human Rights Commission, saying that they had been wrongfully terminated. And these two tribes argued that, well, in fact, you don't have jurisdiction over this matter. It's an internal matter. It deals with our relationship with our government employees, and state law doesn't apply. So they went through the courts, and the First Circuit agreed with the state, arguing that in fact, the state did have jurisdiction over this case, and they relied solely on the language of the Settlement Act and decided that the state does, in fact, have jurisdiction. With Maine v. Johnson, they were seeking to take over discharge permitting under the Clean Water Act from the EPA. And EPA reviewed their application and decided that, yes, they could take over permitting under the Clean Water Act, but they couldn't take it over with regards to tribal discharge points on tribal land, saying that, no, the tribe had jurisdiction over that. So the state of Maine sued the EPA in federal court. And again, the federal court, the First Circuit, relying on the Settlement Act, saying, yes, the state has jurisdiction over those two tribal discharge points. The two tribes, the Penobscot Indian Nation and the two bands of the Passamaquoddy Maquoddy tribe intervened in the case and argued their case in front of the First Circuit, but again the First Circuit sided with the state saying that the state had jurisdiction. So you can see these two cases really result in a severe limitation on the tribe's authority to govern themselves, to control what's happening on their lands, and I conclude that in fact amount to a limitation on their right to self-determination under the UN Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. And I should note that the same year that these cases were being decided, the UN Declaration was also enacted, and a few months subsequent to this, Maine, their legislature, in fact, enacted a resolution supporting the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. So you have this kind of juxtaposition between the First Circuit and the state of Maine arguing that they have jurisdiction over a lot of what happens on these tribal lands, but then at the same time they're also showing support for the Declaration. Clearly these two decisions, the First Circuit's decisions in Johnson and also with the Ryan cases, clearly the settlement acts aren't, in my opinion, meeting these international human rights standards. The tribes are not able to exercise their right to self-government, they have no control over their internal government relationships, or able to control or manage their natural resources. My point is that instead of relying on U.S. federal law to re-examine these cases, and U.S. federal law, in fact, allows Congress to essentially treat tribes in the way that they see fit, so it allows for these kind of inequities among tribes. Most other tribes in the country wouldn't face this kind of state control over their lands or natural resources. So instead of looking to U.S. federal Indian law, let's look to the U.N. Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, let's look to international human rights law as a way 
to re-examine these settlement acts to make sure that they actually, in fact, meet these standards. My conclusion is that the UN Declaration offers the kind of legal and moral framework to re-examine these inequities that we're seeing here in New England. The new clinic will be working with tribal governments here in New England, and I'm hoping to infuse the declaration into our work in the clinic, as well as in our discussions with tribes here in the area. The declaration is, I think, a useful source for tribes to kind of explain their rights when meeting with state governments, with neighboring communities. The declaration does a good job of outlining what they believe their rights to be. So as part of that work, I hope the clinic will use the declaration as one other source of law when we continue our work with tribes. This preceding program was brought to you by Suffolk University. Please visit us on the web at www.suffolk.edu.